Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen. I'm John Sherman, the show's producer, and our host, as always, is Dr. Colleen Bielitz. Today's guest is Hallie Berger, a PhD student at the University of Connecticut and a volunteer at Future Frogmen. She recently earned her master's in oceanography, researching the vulnerability of Dungeness crabs to climate change. Hallie is passionate about applied research and outreach and plans to pursue a career in marine fisheries science. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Blue Earth Podcast, which is a part of Future Frogmen, a nonprofit fostering future leaders to protect the ocean. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. For season two of our Blue Earth Podcast, we now feature student interviews each month to give our listeners insight into what our next generation of ocean stewards are doing today to protect our tomorrows. And today we have the pleasure of speaking to Hallie Berger. Hey, Hallie, how are you today? Hi, Colleen. I'm well. Excellent. Well, welcome to the show. Now, Hallie, you're part of our organization for Future Frogmen. And uh, did you want to talk about, I always like to start how uh, when people have a love for the ocean and a passion and this desire to protect our ocean began. Do you want to talk a little bit about how your love for the ocean began? Yeah. So I grew up in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which is known as a historic seaport. So growing up, I spent a lot of time um, along the ocean and learning about the history of New Bedford. A lot of field trips to the Whaling Museum in New Bedford, which was a lot of fun. Um, And in the summer, I spent a lot of time going to the beach with my mom. Um, And at the beach, I would just love swimming in the water and kind of exploring and, you know, collecting hermit crabs and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of where my love of the ocean began. And I believe that uh, you also had some experience when you're in fifth grade with a summer camp. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So there's a summer camp in New Bedford called Sea Lab. It runs between fourth and ninth grade. And I started in fifth grade when my Nana kind of told me about it and thought it would be good for me since I love the ocean. So I started in fifth grade and Each summer was spent learning about the ocean, so kind of in the classroom. Um, But we also did a lot of hands-on activities, uh, walking down to the beach and learning how to snorkel, and then in later years, learning how to sail and actually take water quality measurements. Um, So it was really there that um, I discovered that marine science could be a career, and that inspired me to continue my studies in that field. And that's great. I hear a lot of stories of that when uh, we have different types of researchers on the show that have had an interest in marine life from when they were very young, but they have a chance to experience, you know, a program like ours or like Sea Lab that got them interested. And they're like, you know, I can see myself doing this in the future. And I know when you went to school, you went and got your undergrad at uh, Northeastern University when you majored in marine biology. And you enrolled in their signature program, which is the Three Cs program. And that's Three Cs as an S-E-A-S, right? And you had the opportunity to spend a year studying in three different marine environments um, in New England, in Panama, and the Pacific coast of the United States. And you started off doing scientific diving. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about this and that program that you were enrolled in at Northeastern. Yeah, so the first leg of the program starts out um, in the Boston area where Northeastern is located. Um, and there you start with some classes about marine invertebrates, algae, and experimental design. And you also get certified as a scientific diver. 
um, which we had our certification at the end of April and we did 20 dives within a two week span. So it was kind of mm. crazy. Um, and it was also very cold. I think the temperatures were in the forties. Wow. So we had, you know, very thick wetsuits on and we did some quick dives to get all of our certification in place for the next phases of the program. And I believe that your next phase that took you to San Juan, right? Yeah. So we went out to the San Juan Islands um, in Washington state. Um, and there we were learning more about that ecosystem. So we took a class on marine mammals and birds, which was a lot of fun. There was a ferry that would go between the islands that was free. So we would hop on as a class with our binoculars mm. and actually survey the mammals and birds. And I think my favorite part was getting to see orcas. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. It must have been so amazing to see such a magnificent creature in its home environment there. You know, usually you see them in you know, books, you know, when you're um, a kid and to actually see them in person, that must have been something else. Yeah, it was incredible. And I also learned that all of the orcas in the pod are named. So they have a whale museum on the islands that we went to and we got to see all of their names. And some of them were pretty funny. So there was one family where the mom and dad were named like Oreo and double stuff. And <laughs> the the um, offspring was named Cookie. So uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I bet I bet it was. So now here you are, you've done both of these in more of a cold climate water, so to speak. Uh, then you went to Panama, correct? And it was here that you, fo- you first had the opportunity to dive into warm tropical waters. You want to tell us what the experience was like, you know, over in, uh, you know, down in Panama? Yeah. So uh, we started off on the Caribbean side at um, the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, and we were taking classes on tropical fishes and corals. Um, and for those classes, we did a lot of dives in the water. And like you said, this was my first time diving in warm water Mm. and it was just incredible. The visibility was amazing. There was a lot more diversity that, you know, there were so much fishes on the reefs. So it was really interesting to see that environment after only diving in cold water ecosystems. Our last week, we actually traveled across the country to the Pacific side Um, And we spent that week on a remote island in Koiba National Park. And it was there that I actually got to see sea turtles and sharks for the first time, um, which was just amazing to see those creatures that I've always loved seeing photos and videos of and actually experiencing that for myself. Yeah. So you you got to see the sea turtles. Uh, You know, what is it like to see them in person? Like, were they a lot bigger than you imagined? Uh, You know, how quickly do they swim? Yeah. So I saw um, green sea turtles, which were actually quite big, and they swam much faster than I imagined. So I had GoPro on me and I was trying to take a video and swim with it. But it, yeah, it swam away from me so fast. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because when I think about movies like Finding Dory, uh, they you know have the animation of the sea turtles, and it's funny to see them moving through. But they seem like they're you know very slow, when in actuality they're very quick uh, you know swimmers. Yeah. And and boy, it must have been a difference going from that forty degree weather to the warm waters uh, in Panama. Yeah, it really was. Um, so in the cold water you have to wear really thick wetsuits, which are buoyant. So you have to counter that with 
wearing a weight belt of, you know, for me, I would wear like 25 pounds around my waist. And then in Panama, you don't really need a wetsuit because it's so warm. Uh, I would just wear like a skin just to protect me. Um, and then as a result, you don't have to wear as much weight either. So it it is a lot nicer diving in the warm water. Yeah, yeah I'm sure that it is. Now, uh, after you went through this program, you went to UConn to get your master's degree in oceanography, and now you're going for your PhD, but maybe we could talk a little bit about your master's work. So I believe you studied the impacts of climate change on Dungeness crabs, and just for our listeners at home, the Dungeness crab is a species of crab that inhabits eelgrass beds and water bottoms on the west coast of North America. Uh, West Coast favorite. They're known for their tasty, very sweet meat. I have had them and I love them, but they have thinner, smaller legs than like a king or a snow crab, and they typically grow for to about uh, 7.9 inches. So this popular seafood um, that a lot of people, you know, know, and you think about the name Dungeness, and if you don't know where that comes from, it comes from the port of Dungeness in the state of Washington. Uh, where it's a prized crustacean, obviously, that supports the most valuable fishery on the West Coast. However, they're being threatened by ocean acidification and uh, in their marine environment. And you you studied them. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your thesis, which I believe was in two parts, and tell the listeners a little bit about what you learned. Yeah, so it was two parts. Um, I'm co-advised. So one of my advisors is a biogeochemical modeler, and the other is a benthic ecologist. Um, So the first part of my project was working with a biogeochemical model for the West Coast to actually um, estimate the vulnerability of the crab across its life stages to different stressors associated with climate change. So I was looking at low pH, which is associated with ocean acidification, low oxygen, which is associated with hypoxia, and um, also high temperatures associated with ocean warming. Um, And to do that, I would estimate the vulnerability of each life stage to those stressors based first on lab studies that have been done, exposing them to those conditions. Um, So kind of ranking their sensitivity to those conditions. And then also another important axis of vulnerability is exposure. Um, Because even if you're highly sensitive to a condition, if you're not actually going to experience it in the environment, then... um, you'll be protected. Um, So for the exposure axis, we use the biogeochemical model in the future, looking at the year 2100 and also in the present to kind of see how vulnerability will change over time. Um, And this is pretty simple for the life stages that live along the bottom, like the juveniles and adults. Mm -hmm. Um, You can just look at the conditions on the bottom year round. Um, But for the larval stages, it's a little bit more difficult because the larval stages are planktonic. So Mm. their position in the ocean is influenced by, um, you know, the water currents themselves, as as well as the swimming capability of the larvae. So for that, I used a larval transport model, um, where I actually simulated the larval being uh, released from eggs, and then dispersing throughout the water column and then coming back and settling on the shelf. Um, And we actually found that the behavior of the larvae um, helped them to not be as exposed to harmful conditions 
Whereas, you know, the life stages on the bottom may have been exposed more to hypoxia and ocean acidification. Mm -hmm. And then kind of the last step was to integrate across all of the life stages to estimate the overall population vulnerability. And we did that by weighing the different life stages based on how much they contribute to overall population growth um, using a population model. And we found that the adults are actually contributing the most to vulnerability. And we found that vulnerability would increase across all three stressors in the future. Yeah. And we all know that when that happens, that leads to the extinction of a specific species if they can't adapt and they're harmed by all of these different stressors, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, That is one part of it, right? And and now you were talking about ocean warming, which leads to another uh, stressor. Uh, Let's talk about algal blooms, uh, which occur when the algae in the water multiply very quickly. Now, blooms can form in waters that are rich in nutrients that the algae need to grow, such as nitrogen, phosphorus, and iron. And the warmer waters help these blooms to form even more. And these blooms may become more frequent as the earth warms and the levels of nutrients in our waters increase. And it's not like these things haven't happened before. I mean, algal blooms are a part of nature. And the first written reference, I believe, was 1000 BC uh, in the Bible that talks about a harmful algal bloom, where it stated uh, in Exodus that all the waters that were in the river turned to blood and the fish that was in the river died and the river stank and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, right? It was an algal bloom that had happened there. And this is an example of a harmful algal bloom, right? This is algae that can cause harm to animals, people, or the local environment. And I think most people have seen some of these blooms. They can look like foam or scum or different mats on the surface of the water, and they can be in different colors and, you know, reds and browns and black. I know I've seen them when I've you know, gone to the shoreline and they've been these like big, thick, almost foamy mats of like black uh, alga that have formed there. And this though, you know, these harmful blooms can occur in, uh, you know, freshwater, marine water, brackish water, wherever there's abundant nutrients. And if we talk a little bit about the harm that's caused by them, right, they can produce these toxins that can poison humans, fish, and other aquatic animals. Um, they can cause illnesses in people that eat, uh, you know, fish or shell- shellfish that are contaminated with these algal toxins. These blooms become so dense, sometimes they keep sunlight from reaching the lower depths of the water and they remove oxygen from the water as it decomposes, starving fish and plants of the oxygen that they need, right? Which is, leads to the hypoxia. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I want to talk about this because, you know, it's actually humans that are adding to these different harmful algal blooms. And it happens because of a number of things that we do. And, and it's grown in the past two decades because of, you know, landscape uh, runoff, soil erosion from fertilizer, right, agricultural areas and our lawns, and also from deforestation and sewage, right, that are sources of this phosphorus and nitrogen entering our waterways. So these are all impacts that, you know, we as humans are causing and harming our environment. And I believe that you're now doing, a, it was a Canas Marine Policy Fellowship that's going to look into these different types of algal blooms. I'm wondering if maybe you could talk about that because I think you're combining the two, both ocean acidification and the impacts of these harmful algal blooms. Yeah, that's correct. Um so the Canals Marine Policy Fellowship is a year-long fellowship 
where you're working within the federal government, either the executive or the legislative branch in learning about marine policy. So I was sorted into the executive branch and back in October, I went through 20 or so interviews um, with different positions and I actually got matched with the um, NOAA Ocean Acidification Program and National Center for Coastal Ocean Science Competitive Research Program. Um, and my position title will be the Coastal Stressors Program Coordinator. Um, and I'll be specifically focusing on ocean acidification and harmful algae blooms and the interactions between the two, um, because this is an area of research that is lacking. Um, so I'm hoping to work with both uh, offices to kind of bridge the communities and get some research going in this area, um, which is especially important going into the future with climate change. Um, so I'll be working with the program managers from both offices to kind of finalize a workshop report and build up this research community and then um, write a literature review. So kind of set out the basis of the knowledge that we do have and kind of gaps for going forward. And then we're also hoping to develop a call for proposals so we can actually fund some research in that area. Oh, that's fantastic. And where do you see yourself going with your PhD program once your fellowship is over? Yeah, so once my fellowship is over, I'll return to UConn to complete my PhD. And for that, I'm working on a vulnerability assessment for the Atlantic Sea Scallop to climate change stressors. Um, which I'm really looking forward to. So using that same modeling approach as with the Dungeness crab, um, but also hopefully expanding that to include um, socioeconomic vulnerability as well, which is important. And the end goal of that project would be to provide the fishery managers with some recommendations um, so that they can actually adapt to the predicted changes in the fishery. I gotcha. And, and what would some of those ad adaptations be? Yeah, um, so we can use our projections to tell them about, you know, areas that might be hot spots for climate change stressors that maybe they would want to close fishing in those areas. Um, and yeah, I'll let them know about different management strategies that we think could help. Yeah, and I, I think that's great um, because it is true that if there are certain areas that you protect that uh, marine life can come back because it is resilient in a number of ways, but we have to look at all of the ways to, you know, help nature kind of help us. And, um, you know, I always like to end the podcast with a message of hope for our listeners. But before we go ahead and do that, um, I want you to kind of talk about Future Frogmen and some of the things that you have done uh, with this organization, you know, being one of our ocean stewards yourself. Yeah, so I've been volunteering with Future Frogmen for the past couple of years during my master's. Um, and throughout that time, I've had the opportunity to help out with a few different things. So the first was back before the podcast started, there was a video conversation series where we would actually have a live webinar that would then get recorded and um, put onto YouTube, which those videos still exist. So I was a guest on the conversation series and I actually talked about my research with Dungeness crabs um, before I graduated. So back in the earlier stages. Um, so you can go back and find that video. And I believe the audio has also been turned into a podcast. And I also helped lead an outreach event um, at a local public library in Connecticut where 
young kids would come and I'd talk to them about recycling and we would do like a little arts and crafts activity where we would make a sea turtle out of um, a recycled bottle cap and then some felt. So that was a lot of fun to do. I'm really passionate about outreach. So I was happy to have the opportunity to represent future frogmen at that event. Um, and more recently, I helped host a panel on climate change impacts for World Oceans Week um, back in June, I believe. And we also recorded that and posted that to YouTube as well. Um, but basically, we had some other graduate students from local universities talk about their research on different species impacts. And then we had a Q&A. And lastly, I worked on a conversation cartoon, which was about ocean acidification and coral reefs. Um, and it was a, a lot of fun. So I was narrating that. And then the video producer made an animation to go along with it. Yeah. And that's great work, uh, Haley, like you said. Uh, and I believe it's important to touch the younger generations and, you know, have them understand uh, ocean literacy and how what we do impacts you know, the world around us and especially our ocean. So uh, like I said, I do like to end with a message of hope for our listeners. And maybe you can talk about some small changes that people can make to ensure that, you know, we have cleaner water or talk about ways to mitigate climate change. Yeah. So I think it's really important to use our voice. Um, and we can do that by educating others. And we can also do that by um, putting pressure on schools, businesses, elected officials to make um, changes that mitigate climate change, such as divesting um, from fossil fuels and then transitioning to clean renewable energy. And I would say there is hope. Um, you know, there's still time and we do have a choice to make. We can continue on with business as usual, or we can make the choice to drastically reduce carbon emissions. And, you know, that would help us reduce the negative consequences of climate change in the long run. And especially this week with the inauguration of our new president in the United States, there's a lot of hope there. Um, he's already started rolling back some of the environmental decisions made by the previous administration, including rejoining the Paris Agreement and canceling the Keystone XL pipeline permit, which is great. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely hope for the future, um, especially with the priority being climate change, as our new president has said that that would be part of his focus. And Haley, thank you so much for that. And I really appreciate you being on the show. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you here. And I appreciate you being part of Future Frogmen. And at home, it's listeners like you, our ocean stewards and our citizen scientists that are pushing for governments and industries to join forces for ocean solutions, right? We need to spread this new view of our ocean and it's important to our species survival. So if you would like to donate to future frogmen or become part of it, or if there's a topic you would like for us to touch upon or a guest speaker that you would like us to have on the show, please feel free to contact us at info at futurefrogmen.org or visit our website, futurefrogmen.org. Thank you for joining us today, and please spread the word as we work to improve ocean health by deepening the connection between people and nature. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you like what you heard, you can find us at futurefrogmen.org or on social media at futurefrogmen. 
We post every Monday, so until next week, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks.